I'm Jacob Eisler, Yates Glazebrook Fellow in Law at Jesus College. I'm Boya Wang. I'm a research fellow in Center for Business Research. Well, Jacob and Boya, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today at the inaugural Social Science and Law Interdisciplinary Conference. If we deal with you first, Jacob, you introduced the conference and you talked about thinking like a lawyer in the midst of creative disruption. Why do we need to review the law now at this point in time? So as I I look at sort of the history from uh, World War II onward, there's sort of a golden age of law when legal reforms and court decisions seem to be major drivers of social progress. I'm thinking of civil rights movement in the U.S. when both courts and legislation had this uh, tremendous effect of informing progress. I'm thinking of um, the emergence of the EU as this cosmopolitan institution in Europe at sort sort of the end of the 20th century. In the past, I would say 15 or 20 years, it seems as though law and the ability of sort of legislation and and judicial lawmaking to affect social progress has uh, declined, or certainly it doesn't have the same leading role that it once did. I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing. I think it does require that lawyers look at the sort of the new forces of, of, of social development, which seem to be uh, economics, quantitative methods, statistics, the rising role of technology. Technology has always been important, but it seems to have sort of an increasingly pervasive role in social development and society as a whole. And I think if law is to remain relevant and retain its capacity to sort of seek just outcomes, it is imperative that lawyers be aware of these social science methods. And I sort of made three points. I said, well, one, law needs to be reactive to the power of these methods. Law needs to have a role in disciplining these methods. But I think the most interesting was my third point, which was that we need a sort of new, potentially a new conception of law that serves justice in potentially a methodologically novel way. And I think that's why an interdisciplinary approach is so critical. Uh, Thank you. And just, we do live in an age of technology, of technology transcending the globe. There will be many different legal systems that one company might be subject to. But we also live in an age which is perhaps the end of deference. And do you think with the end of that deference, and perhaps also allegiance to nation state, that people might be questioning their legal systems more? We used to accept the law and be deferential to it. Mm -hmm. So regarding the end of deference, I guess I would say uh, that it, 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 the, the way you're phrasing that makes it sound like a positive, it certainly can be. And as I said in my talk, these sort of other mechanisms for social change can be tremendously positive. I do think it's helpful to look to the unique virtues of law and try and enhance and refine them. Um, and I think in uh, sort, of, sort of well-functioning democracies, law has the unique benefit of reflecting the will of the entire polity, uh, at least as an ideal. And as such, law has this unique public virtue, uh, I might phrase it. And that um, the end of deference, insofar as it induces uh, new creativity and so it induces innovation, that's fantastic. Insofar as it perhaps um, eliminates the ability of law to affect general change, that can have uh, pathological, impulse, pathological consequences as well. And what I would uh, point to in particular is, say, the rise in economic inequality and the seeming inability of, 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 of states to do anything about it um, as potentially one area where we can see, well, with the decline of law, we have less, uh, less capacity there. And less respect. I know you've got to go, but just quickly, are you an optimist about the future and the legal systems? Does it matter that we look at law and economics and inequality together? My public-facing persona is optimistic. You don't want to know about the other persona. 
but, but it, it's important to look at that, law economics and inequality, and point to how they are related. I think it is important. I would say I think it's also important, though, to make sure that the economics does not come to dominate the law in law and economics, and that we recognize but also adapt law's ability to serve as a public force, and that it's not just that economics can inform law. This is sort of, I, th I would say, been the driving, the driving ethos of law economics, but that law can rebaseline and determine the conditions of economics. Jacob Eisler, thank you very much thank indeed for so talking much. to us. Thank you. I'm Ding Chen. And the title of your paper, Ding? Uh, the title of my paper is FinTech in China, Evolution, Regulation and Sustainability. And why did you talk about that? The rise of FinTech in China has been very quick and it's also been very significant to get the unbanked into the consumer economy. We are looking at uh, the potential of fintech and uh, to what extent it could contribute to the sustainability of economic growth and also what the challenges it raises to uh, regulation and uh, probably to the, the future of human beings. How do you measure the rise of fintech in China? Is it easy to do to say fintech has had this impact on growth in China? I think there, there are some, some index and uh, some methodologies to, 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 to measure the impact of, of fintech, but my, to my knowledge, by far, most research is uh, produced generally by the fintech sectors. Also, I think there is uh, the, the, the problem for our research, for example, of, of this particular paper, there is an, a, an, another side of the story we haven't been looked at, and also, to my knowledge, and uh, not being really looked at by most of the researchers in this area. That is to what extent the fintech contributes to the real economy. And how much does fintech contribute to the real economy in China? That's the question that remains to be answered. That the, the other side of the story, which hasn't been really looked at. And, and we know that in China, it's a vast country with many different regions. And we know that rural communities were unbanked. We know that through the internet, like Alibaba and Alipay, that, that the unbanked have been able to become drawn into the consumer economic economy through the, the internet. How significant has that been, you know, the rise of fintech for the unbanked? By far, I think it's still fintech as a, as a whole, fintech sector as a whole, is still relatively small and not really significant compared to the formal banking sector. But uh, we do see the potential of fintech, what it can achieve. I think in general, my view is is, is, is just grow too, too fast and in a too, too short term. So really remains to, to be seen whether this is just temporary as a bubble or whatsoever it is. This remains to be seen. Time will tell us. Ding Chen, thank you. It's very nice to talk to you. Thank you. Boya, tell me the name of your paper. Uh, the name of my paper is called Employment Protection and Total Factor Productivity, the Impact of the Chinese Labour Law Contract. In terms of the development of China, the rule of law, how important is that to China and the, its growth and its growth of business? I think as the country is being marketized and as the, the marketization reform progresses to reduce the risk and uncertainties in the business sector, uh, rule 
rule of law clearly is playing an increasingly important role, but at the same time, we see the laws are being implemented in parallel to other informal institutions. That means the actual effects of the laws would be dependent on the uh, local social economic context, and that varies hugely between regions, doesn't it? Exactly, because over the past decades, China has been following a very gradual incrementalism reform strategy. And leaving huge degree of autonomy to the local authorities for the policy implementation and enforcement, and that's why we see a striking cross-regional variation in terms of the actual effect of policies and laws. And you looked at one law, the impact of the Chinese Labour Contracts Act. When was that introduced, and how important? Is it the original Chinese labor law was in place for many years, but in 2007 the labor law received a very major revision, which caused a huge debate in the public regarding the actual impact on the economy. This was particularly interesting during the time when the the the, the negative impacts of the financial crisis started to to be spread into the mainland domestic business sector. We're looking at the growth of China, and it's only relatively recently that China now has westernized-styled companies because they used to be state-owned. I mean, how important has that been? For global equality and the growth of China, we know China has lifted a lot of people out of poverty. But this fast-moving, westernized-style economy and companies that are now developing across sectors in China—I wouldn't say they are westernized, and certainly they have imported lots of our Western market economies, business element or practices into the Chinese model. But the overall governance structure of the Chinese firms are still very centralized and controlled by the major shareholders, which is the, the de facto controllers. The company are government at various levels. And then, if there is a dispute, would the contract, would the Labour Contracts Act, settle that dispute, or could it be settled in other ways? Still, I mean, how important is the law in settling disputes in China today? Well, although the law was revised and approved by the National Congress, but its actual implementation and enforcement. Was largely decided, influenced by the、uh, local authorities. So, in terms of the actual efficiency or effectiveness of the law, it, it really varies across regions. And just finally, we're at the inaugural Social Science and Law Interdisciplinary Conference. Do you think it's helpful to look at law and economics together? Well, certainly, because so far many of the legal discussions stay at the theoretical or philosophical level, but also I think legal scholars they need input, especially empirical input from、uh, economic studies. The law and economic studies are not just about prediction, but it's also about assessment and justification. And so, looking at A developing economy, the fast-growing economy like China, alongside those which are more developed, 
throughout the world that's important research. Yes, exactly. But the thing is also when we look at rule of law in China, we need to also think about the complementary institution at the local level. In this paper, we find that actually the effect of the law really varies across different ownership structure as well as the provincial local labor market development and quality of law. Have you enjoyed the papers you've listened to? Yeah, it's it's actually very recent research, but we're really enjoying it and we're looking forward to more interesting findings. Boya Wang, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast series today on the inaugural Social Science and Law Interdisciplinary Conference. We're looking at your paper, Employment Protection and Total Factor Productivity, the Impact of the Chinese Labour Contracts Act. Thank you. Thank you, thanks.